This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Take a long look at the grass and birds and flowers and relax. That is the message Jesus has for us in the passage we'll look at in this episode of The Extraordinary Story. But the message is much more than that, as we shall see. Jesus contrasts two worldviews. One is the worldview of mammon, the false god of wealth, the worldview that traps us in a technological bubble as anonymous wage slaves worried about our bank accounts. The other worldview is the one where we are the billionaire children of the king of the universe who gives us everything for free, pouring beauty, truth, and goodness on us from our waking moment until the middle of the night. But it all starts with taking a long look at grass and birds and flowers and relaxing. Because the passage for today comes from the Gospel of Luke in the middle of chapter 12, which we have been going through. But actually, there's a version of the same saying of Jesus recounted earlier in Matthew. The two are very much the same, but there are two details I want to include that are at the beginning and end of the Matthew version. So I'm going to read it from there, starting in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. I love what Erasmo Leva Maricacus, who is now the monk, Father Simeon, says about this passage in his four-volume meditation on Matthew. He said, The entire passage is like a walk through the Garden of Eden by the side of the beautiful Creator, a healing stroll intended to open our eyes and cure the restlessness in our heart by the contemplation of the natural world around us. End quote. He says the verbs here, when Jesus says to look at this, have the sense of cast a long glance at and learn your lesson from. So what Jesus is saying here is turn your eyes away from yourselves and look at the things around you. 
So that's what we're going to do a little bit. And it's absolutely necessary to do that. But it's also really, really hard to do that because we have divided hearts. Jesus started the passage by saying, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon means wealth, and Jesus here talks about wealth not just as greed, but as a kind of a false god. Because that's what wealth and the desire for wealth becomes. It becomes a false god who demands everything. Last episode, we saw how wealth redefined a man's relationships so that his dead father and living brother became dollar signs to him. And we talked about how we think God is too demanding simply because he asks for us the kind of loyalty that our workplace or our appetites get from us freely. Well, mammon demands an even fiercer loyalty, and like slaves and thrall to a powerful tyrant, we give it. And mammon doesn't just turn our relatives into dollar signs and a means to an end when we look at them, but he turns us each into a dollar sign and a means to an end when we look at ourselves in the mirror. Way back in the Finding in the Temple episode, I talked about how the market and the state had come to define mankind, even in the days of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. The roads were built by Rome to facilitate trade and power, and the only way you could get from point A to point B was to follow the roadways built by the market and the state, the roads built to facilitate the way of mammon, if you will. The rival to that was religion, which has always lived in kind of an uneasy relationship sometimes too cozy, sometimes not cozy at all with the state and the market. So you had the way of the temple too. Well, the market and state are just as powerful or more so in our own day, and the temple has waned in power. Religion is no longer the factor it once was. Philosopher Alastair McIntyre said, What we confront today is a new Leviathan, the state and market in a monstrous amalgam. End quote. This new Leviathan is the reason we feel isolated, alone, and anonymous in our world today, according to St. John Paul II. He wrote, The individual today is often suffocated between two extremes, represented by the state and the marketplace. End quote. One extreme is the government, the state, which makes us feel like, quotes, an object of state administration, he said. We are pawns, important insofar as we are voters or taxpayers, means to someone else's power. That's why I think there's no major government opposition to streaming addictive forms of entertainment, even immoral forms of entertainment, into our homes and legalizing addictive drugs. Addicted people are followers who don't make trouble. Karl Marx said religion was the opiate of the masses. Today, opiates are the government of the masses. But that's the state. John Paul II said that the market also defines us as, quotes, a producer and consumer of goods. In other words, we are dollar signs to the market, a consciousness with a wallet. These two faces of mammon both define us as much less than we are while demanding loyalty. St. John Paul II said, quote, People lose sight of the fact that life in society has neither the market nor the state as its final purpose, since life itself has a unique value which the state and the market must serve, end quote. They're supposed to serve us, not the other way around. Pope Francis, in his encyclical on the environment, Laudato Si, agreed. He said, quote, Politics and the economy tend to blame each other. While some are concerned only with financial gain and others with holding onto or increasing their power, 
What we are left with are conflicts or spurious arguments where the last thing either party is concerned about is caring for the environment and protecting those who are most vulnerable, end quote. But this state of affairs leaves people extremely unhappy because we are greater than dollar signs, greater than wage slaves. So what are we? Every human being is a soul and body unity. We don't have a body, we are a body. And we are hardwired to be connected to other soul and body creatures. In short, we are embodied and embedded, made of flesh and blood in a tactile world and in community with others. But in the 21st century, Mammon has a great weapon in making us forget who we are, technology. Technology seems to take us out of our bodies, out of contact with the world, and isolate us from each other. We each live in a cocoon, a technological bubble that Pope Francis and others have called the technological paradigm. Pope Francis said, quote, Technology tends to absorb everything into its ironclad logic. In the most radical sense of the term, power is its motive, a lordship over all, end quote. So this false god, Mammon, thus creates a world that undermines who we are. We talked about how sin is what happens when a steward wrecks the house he's supposed to be watching. Well, think of how technology separates us from the world. The seven deadly sins have been with us since the dawn of humanity, but technology delivers them all in convenient, individualized packaging. Social media caters to pride, turning friendship on its head, from being self-giving, centered on service, to being self-centered pursuit of likes and follows. And it supercharges envy, making us wish our lives were different even while we try to get others to be envious of ours. For gluttony, we have fast food, which is a caricature of mealtime, a cartoonish exercise in slick packaging and cheap taste thrills. For anger, we have clickbait stories that online algorithms make sure will make us angry about all the things we like to be angry about. For greed, we have credit cards on a small scale and financial speculation on a global scale, creating bubble economies and debt crises large and small. For lust, we have sexualized entertainment, including the biggest entertainment moneymaker of all, pornography, which makes fulfilling your fantasies so easy that many men have stopped bothering to try dating. In fact, everything is so easy, we have stopped bothering to do a lot of things. Boredom used to be considered asadia, the deadly sin of sloth, but now technology makes us impatient with the world as it is, and we get so many cheap thrills so easily, we forget how to get them any other way. At the same time, the technological paradigm makes us forget God. Not technology, mind you, but the technological paradigm. There is a place in the world for technology. Jesus, like St. Joseph, was a carpenter. In fact, the New Testament word for Joseph and Jesus that we translate carpenter was tecton, He was literally dealing with technology, but brick-and-mortar technology, technology that was embodied and embedded. He worked with wood and nails and the laws of the physical world to make structures stand. He had to use conversation and negotiation to keep customers happy and to find out what they want and how best to serve them. Now we have virtual marketing, advertising that is about how we feel, not about the way things are. And we even have virtual goods, virtual money, and artificial intelligence, and artificial life. My uncle, Chris Langton, was one of the early pioneers of artificial life, which was a term he invented, I believe. Decades ago, he created the Langton Ant and the Langton Loop at the University of Michigan, 
computer programs that created their own logical patterns. Later, he worked in Los Alamos, New Mexico. But I remember when he was at the University of Arizona and he showed us one of the early instances of artificial life. I remember him showing us a program that showed a flock of computer-generated birds flying in ways that he had not programmed and that they together seemed to make their own flight patterns. I'm sure I'm describing that inadequately. My dad is an atheist, was an atheist then, and Wikipedia tells me that my uncle Chris is an atheist too. But seeing what he had done made my dad doubt his own non-faith because he figured the world needed an initial programmer in the same way that Uncle Chris's artificial life did. It also needed a power source. It needed to be sustained in being with something outside of itself. These two aspects of God as designer and as power source are two things that we tend to separate nowadays. Some people think of God as the watchmaker God, a mechanical God who started the world and watches it run. Or some think of God as the force, the Star Wars God who empowers all things. Well, in this analogy, the force is electricity, and the watchmaker God is my Uncle Chris. My Uncle Chris created creatures that were virtually embodied, distinguished from each other by space and time, and virtually embedded, reacting to each other. But the gospel we're looking at today, I think, reveals that Uncle Chris was not like the real God. What Uncle Chris created lacked one significant thing that the real world has, and that's love. Here's how Jesus puts it in the gospel for today. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? In Luke, he adds the phrase, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God is a person who cares for us and is intimately knowledgeable about us, including each hair on our head. He cares about every sparrow falling and every grain of sand. God is love, the person who is always and everywhere present in the world and moves all things toward their purpose and stands also as the purpose they are moving toward. This is what the poet Dante discovers at the end of the Divine Comedy. After this long trip through the afterlife, he says, The truth I longed for came to me, smiting my mind like lightning flashing bright. He discovers, All my will and all my desires turned as a wheel in equal balance by the love that moves the sun and other stars. The love that moves the stars also pays attention to me personally. Love defines the order of the cosmos. The logos, the logic of the universe, is love. It's hard to overestimate how much this changes everything. Mammon does not love you. Mammon just wants your money and your obedience. That's one reason Laudato Si was such an important encyclical. It sees popular concern about the environment as a key way to restore human beings with a proper understanding of our own importance. I think Pope Francis hoped that the more we knew the telos, the goal and purpose of the world, the more we would understand the telos or goal and purpose of ourselves. And the more we did that, the more we would see the beauty of the Creator and could use the environmental movement as a way to remind the world that creation was built by love, for love, and that we are made in the image of love.
Pope Francis wrote in Laudato Si, quote, How can we genuinely teach the importance of concern for other vulnerable beings, however troublesome or inconvenient they may be, if we fail to protect a human embryo, even when its presence is uncomfortable and creates difficulties, end quote. Or Jesus Christ might say it this way, isn't one human embryo worth many, many sparrows? Pope Francis also wrote about a major way the technological paradigm is causing real harm. He said, quote, Thinking that we should enjoy absolute power over our bodies turns, often subtly, into thinking we should enjoy absolute power over creation. Learning to accept our body, to care for it, and to respect its fullest meaning is an essential element of any genuine human ecology. Also, valuing one's own body in its femininity or masculinity is necessary. It is not a healthy attitude which would seek to cancel out sexual difference because it no longer knows how to confront it. End quote. So mammon makes it impossible for us to see ourselves for who we are. Mammon drives us to want to change who we are. But Pope Francis argues that increasing our contact with the natural world, God's world, restores us. There's a great podcast series available as an audible book called The Three-Day Effect that illustrates how being in nature can help us restore ourselves. In it, author Florence Williams takes former frontline soldiers and sexual trafficking victims who have terrible trauma and addresses it by spending three days outdoors without technology, and it's beautiful to see how much it helps them. They were misused by people who treated their bodies as a means to an end, and they feel healing by becoming an end in themselves again. People who are embodied, made in the image and likeness of God, and embedded in a world created by love. We all need that kind of restoration. Richard Louvre, in his 2007 book, Last Child in the Woods, popularized the term nature deficit disorder to suggest that contact with nature is a key human need. He said nature gives us our bodies and our relationships back. He wrote, quote, As we grow more separate from nature, we continue to separate from one another physically. End quote. And he quoted Nancy Das, a researcher with the American Psychological Association, who said, quote, Without any touch, infant primates die. Adult primates with touch deficits become more aggressive. But perversely, many of us can go through an average day and not have more than a handshake. For a whole generation of kids, direct experiences in the backyard, in the tool shed, in the fields and woods have been replaced by indirect learning through machines. These young people are smart. They grew up with computers. They were supposed to be superior. But now we know that something's missing, end quote. God is intimately involved in our lives, touching us each moment with his grace. But when we move in the technological bubble of mammon's world, we never encounter him. As Mother Teresa put it, quote, We need to find God, and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. God is the friend of silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass, grows in silence. See the stars, the moon, and the sun, how they move in silence. We need silence to be able to touch souls, end quote. Since we are embodied and embedded, touching souls means real contact with the physical world and with other physical creatures. When we lose that, we become worried and anxious. And as Jesus says, and which of you by being anxious can add one cubit to his lifespan? Well, we know that that's literally true. The American Psychological Association says 70% of Americans report physical consequences of stress. Another 70% report emotional consequences. 
About 30% suffer from chronic stress. 42% of us lay awake at night unable to sleep because of stress. And what are we worried about? The study breaks down the causes this way. 69% of us say it's personal finances. 65% of us say it's work. And 61% say it's the economy. In other words, we worry about the very issues Jesus says not to worry about. Reaping, sowing, spending. God clothes the birds of the field and feeds them, but mammon has convinced us that we can only get what we want by selling our soul. But not only can none of us add a single moment to our lifespan by worrying, in fact, statistics show that by worrying, we take minutes off our lifespan. Stress is killing us. What is needed is a lifestyle change. I'm convinced that the only solution to the environmental crisis is for more of us to live the Beatitudes of Jesus Christ. Pope Benedict XVI, in fact, made this point in his straightforward way, saying, quote, Environmental degradation challenges us to examine our lifestyle and the prevailing modes of consumption and production, which are often unsustainable from a social, environmental, and even economic point of view. We can no longer do without a real change of outlook, which will result in new lifestyles, in which the quest for truth, beauty, and goodness, and communion with others for the sake of common growth are the factors which determine consumer choices, savings, and investments. End quote. In other words, ultimately, only awe and gratitude for truth, beauty, and goodness can change hearts and save the planet. Beauty, truth, and goodness are literally calming because they are attributes of God himself. And so, contact with beauty, truth, and goodness gives us a vicarious experience of God himself. As Jesus puts it, quote, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? End quote. Have you ever had a situation where you had to look through someone's belongings, a lost purse that you found to figure out whose it is, or an office desk that you inherited, or an attic that wasn't cleaned out before you bought it? You get a fascinating window into who that person is, what interests them, what they value. The same thing happens in nature. I can't tell you the number of times it has happened on hikes with my family. We come across a strange creature a green beetle shaped like a banana peel or an enormous yellow moth that I have never seen before. If I put them in a book with the caption, Rare Insect Found Only in the Bolivian Rainforests, most people would totally believe it. But they are right here in Kansas. Who knew? And it's fascinating. All of this helps you discover who God is. You're looking through God's attic, through his desk, to find out who he is. He is the God of surprises, of unexpected beauty and variety. Seeing the lilies of the field and even the grass helps you see how great God truly is, the creator of colors and wind and blades of grass and the veins of leaves that reshape drops of dew. And the variety goes from deep in the ocean to the highest heights. As Psalm 8 puts it, O Lord, our Lord, when I see the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you arranged, what is man that you should keep him in mind, the son of man that you should care for him? Yet you have made him little lower than the angels. With glory and honor you crowned him, gave him power over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all of them, sheep and oxen, yes, even the cattle of the fields, birds of the air, and fish of the sea that make their way through the waters. 
And you see the same thing in the New Testament when St. Paul speaks about disbelievers. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. End quote. Paul quotes Psalm 19, which says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. End quote. So creation truly shows us who God is, what his personality is, what he loves. You can see it whether you were born millennia ago and think God put stars in a dome over the earth, or you can believe it even more when you discover that there is beauty in the far reaches of the cosmos, as NASA's new James Webb telescope has shown us. And you can believe it even more once you see what exists on the microscopic level, and that that has beauty and order too. The Bible, in fact, is a better account of creation than any modern thinker has given us, because it recognizes that the God of love fills everything with beauty, truth, and goodness. But you have to thrust off mammon's paradigm to truly see it, says Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, is how he puts it. That's so true. Like I said before, we are all billionaires, holders of a multi-billion dollar value in the whole realm of beauty that God has given us free access to. But more than that, it's an eternal value. Bishop Barron gives a great account of the creation story in Genesis, when God creates the light, the sun, the stars, moon, sea, and animals. Bishop Barron points out two things about it. First, people used to worship exactly these things in the ancient world. So Genesis is showing us that God is the master over all of it. He is above and beyond and different from all those false gods. The second thing Bishop Barron points out is that the book of Genesis is designed as a kind of liturgical procession in which the figures of the world are all here to offer praise to God the Father. And like any liturgical procession in the Old Testament or in your local parish this Sunday, the least important parts of the retinue come first, followed in the very end by the celebrant, the priest. Or in Genesis, the man and woman, Adam and Eve, followed by a day of rest. So the creation story shows that the world is actually like a temple, one showing the primacy of God and one where our true worship of the true God is the whole point of the whole exercise. But let's take this a step farther. In the episode about the temple, we talked about how it was designed as a microcosm of the cosmos with vines and animals and the heavens depicted. Well, the temple is gone, but my church still has images of vines and wheat and angels. And more than that, in the Catholic Church, we bring actual fruit of the vine and of the earth into our churches, embodied and embedded together into real tangible matter as bread and wine. And then the material from the world is transubstantiated into the bread of heaven, the body of Christ, and we are embodied and embedded in God's very life in the sacraments. The Church defines the matter and form of the sacraments. The matter is the stuff of the sacraments. You have to use water to baptize someone. It can't be done with milk or wine. The Eucharist has to be done with unleavened bread and wine, not muffins and juice. And the bodies of an unmarried man and an unmarried woman are the matter for marriage. To get a sacrament, you need the right matter and the right form. The form is the right phraseology, the right words that transform the matter. I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit changes the baptismal act from a water bath into a sharing in Christ's dying and rising. This is my body, turns the bread into the body and blood of Christ. 
I do turns a couple's act of consummation into a lifelong mingling of two lives. What it does in each case is connect the matter we find in the maze with God who is outside space and time. The priest's words make eternity and time mingle together in the sacraments, changing matter and filling it with a new form, a new purpose. Well, just as Bishop Barron described the procession of creation as liturgical, we can describe the whole of reality as sacramental. God spoke into being everything that was made. Then he spoke the word into our world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So now all of nature is sacramentalized to a degree. We see Jesus Christ present through all of it. He changes it from mere matter to matter in the form of God's gift, matter signifying God's presence. God is present everywhere by essence, presence, and power. We can see him through all things. The book of Revelation even says that all of creation will be made new, a new heaven and a new earth, something that Pope Benedict called the transfiguration of the cosmos. This makes everything we see a future sacrament, Or, since there is not past or future in God, it makes creation sacramental to a degree right now. God is right now present before time creating the world we know. God is right now at the end of time transfiguring creation into a new heaven and a new earth. Creation is constantly telling us that this is what God is doing. Saints see this. 1600 years ago, St. Augustine wrote, Question the beauty of the earth, the beauty of the sea, the beauty of the wide air around you, the beauty of the sky, question the order of the stars, the sun whose brightness lights the days, the moon whose splendor softens the gloom of night, question the living creatures that move in the waters, that roam upon the earth, that fly through the air, the spirit that lies hidden, the matter that is manifest, the visible things that are ruled, the invisible things that rule them, question all these, they will answer you. Behold and see, we are beautiful." Their beauty is their confession of God. Who made these beautiful, changeable things, if not the one who is beautiful and unchangeable? End quote. St. Therese of Lisieux in the 1800s saw it too. She was traveling to Rome and saw the Swiss Alps. She wrote, Far away on the horizon we could see the great mountains. The sight of these mountains made a deep impression on my thoughts. I felt as if I were already beginning to understand the greatness of God and the wonders of heaven. End quote. Then in the 20th century, J.R.R. Tolkien gave us a high artistic expression of this vision of man living in harmony with the world in the Shire of the Lord of the Rings. Goldberry, the wife of character Tom Bombadil, says, The trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong each to themselves. End quote. Among other things, the book is about those who see the intrinsic value of the earth as something worth saving and those who see it only as something to exploit. And to continue my streak of quoting Bob Dylan, I'll quote his poem, Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie. He wrote about how terrible consumerism had already gotten in the 1960s. It was that commercialism that drove him to love the raw, authentic music of Woody Guthrie. He traveled to New York in part to visit Woody at Brooklyn State Hospital where he was dying. He did, and he described the experience in his poem this way. Where do you look for this hope that you're seeking? Where do you look for this hope that you know is out there somewhere? You can either go to the church of your choice or go to Brooklyn State Hospital. You'll find God in the church of your choice. You'll find Woody Guthrie in Brooklyn State Hospital. And though it's only my opinion, I may be right or wrong, you'll find them both in the Grand Canyon at sundown.
Well, I don't know if you'll find Woody Guthrie in nature, but I know you will find God there. I recently got to show off one of the dad tricks I learned raising nine children. My daughter was helping watch a neighbor's infant, and he wouldn't stop crying. Take him outside, I said. She did. In the fresh air with birds and sun and wind, he was quiet instantly. I'm convinced the same thing happens to us. Our hearts quiet down when we go outside. Think about it. Things have never been better in the world in terms of health cures, poverty worldwide going down, abductions down, famines disappearing, and on and on. But we have never been more worried and anxious. That's because we've lost touch with ourselves and with God. If you go outside, you will find both. Finding yourself is a cliche, but it's really true. If you disconnect from the temperature-controlled fluorescent-lighted offices, if you tear away the images and messages bombarding you through screens, if you step away from the electricity and the internet, you are left with just you. There, in awe and wonder, in silent ruminations, in quiet contemplation, you can find yourself. As St. John Paul II said, quote, From my earliest days as a young priest, I have spent many hours talking with students on university campuses or while hiking along lakes or in the mountains and hills. God continues to speak to young people on the banks of the Mississippi River and on the slopes of the Rocky Mountains and across the rolling hills and plains. God continues to speak to every human person. End quote. He's right. So share this podcast with a friend and then leave your phone at home Go outside to the nearest grove of trees, and in the silence you will hear more than I can ever tell you about God's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.